Hello, and welcome to World Canvas from International Programs at the University of Iowa. I'm Joan Kerr. Tonight's program will focus on the global implications of Me Too. Me Too began humbly in 2006 as a way to mobilize grassroots support for victims of sexual violence, but it exploded into a worldwide phenomenon beginning in 2017, exposing crude, harassing, intimidating, and violent behaviors by individuals, as well as the systems that allow such behaviors to thrive. On tonight's program, our guests, prominent feminist scholars with expertise on Me Too in the United States, United Kingdom, Brazil, France, India, Korea, and various parts of Africa will not only reflect on the aspect of solidarity behind Me Too, but on the backlash that accompanies it. I'm pleased now to introduce our first panel. Minakshi Gigi Durham from the University of Iowa is a feminist scholar, journalism professor, and the author of Me Too, The Impact of Rape Culture in the Media. Raquel Paiva from the Federal University of Rio de Janeiro is an emeritus professor, a feminist scholar, and a researcher in the field of communication and gender studies, who has written on Me Too in Brazil. And Rosemarie Scullion from the University of Iowa is an associate professor in the Department of French and Italian and a feminist scholar with expertise in Balance Tempore in France. Welcome to all of you, and thank you for being here. Um, Shishi, I'd like to start with you, if I may. Much of your research and writing has centered on the media exploitation of women and young girls. Your book, The Lolita Effect, gained a great deal of notice when it was first published, and your most recent book, Me Too, The Impact of Rape Culture in the Media, expands on that theme. Let me first ask you what you mean by rape culture in the media. Um, thank you, Joan. Uh, first, I'm just, I just want to say I'm really glad to be here today, along with you and this panel of amazing feminist activists and scholars from around the world who offer their insights and ideas about anti-rape movements in a range of countries and contexts. Um, so your question about rape culture in the media, I mean, I want to think first about just the idea of rape culture as kind of systemic and embedded um, in institutions and in our cultural practices. Um, in ways that almost normalize violence against women on the one hand, and also work to silence people who want to speak out against it on the other. And so um, I've written quite a bit in the book about how um, the institutions themselves had various mechanisms in, in place that, um, especially media workplaces, that allowed sexual assault and harassment to continue for decades without, you know, without being reported or being publicly acknowledged. And there were a number of institutional practices that actually tended to, in a sense, in one sense, acknowledge the fact that, you know, that sexual violence was endemic to those workplaces. Um, but on the other hand, had set up, a, you know, a whole sort of battery of systems that uh, prevented survivors, mainly women, uh, from being able to report in any way, you know, from HR departments that did nothing or from actually no HR departments, nowhere to go to report to, um, you know, what, what are called catch and kill strategies where um, certain publications would pay, especially women who had been the, um, the, the victims of assaults by famous men for their stories and then never publish them, you know, bury them, make sure that they never went public. Um, to non-disclosure agreements that prevented women from speaking to anyone about these assaults for, you know, to anyone, not even their partners, not even a therapist. And um, so, you know, non-disclosure agreements are, you know, really 
uh, uh, you know, draconian in a way because they they acknowledge the fact of the incident. So, you know, it's not you know there's no there's no question that these assaults were actually happening and that the that these work sites were aware of these you know these incidents. Um, but on the other hand, the non-disclosure is you know a very serious and severe way of making sure that the information never got out and the predators and the um, um, you know the assaulters were never brought to justice in any way. And so, so when we talk about rape culture, we're looking at that those sorts of practices, those kinds of um, institutional mechanisms that are, you know, I'm, I'm speaking here first about the workplace, but they also ripple throughout society. And there are myriad ways in which you know the culture tends to blame victims, to um, to silence them, to shame them, and in another sense, to allow sexual violence to continue unchecked. Mm-hmm. Why do you think the Me Too hashtag has become so powerful and ubiquitous? What is it about this moment in time and this hashtag? Yeah, I know. It's really interesting. Um, well, I mean, I think to, to I would just want to, you know, sort of clarify a few things, you know, before I sort of get into the hashtag, because um, I think these days we tend to use Me Too as an umbrella term to mm-hmm. refer to revelations of sexual harassment, discrimination, abuse, assault, and other forms of sexual violence. But the moniker of Me Too is kind of shorthand, and it may eclipse the fact that movements like this have been underway for decades, um, as well as the variances in sexual assault and abuse in different spaces, places, cultures, contexts. Um, And I just want to emphasize here that Me Too did not start with the hashtag. It didn't start with the US film actor Alyssa Milano's tweet, and it doesn't end there either. So um, so really, you know, just I'd like to, you know, note first that the term Me Too and its use in the context of sexual violence was coined by an extraordinary African-American woman, Tarana Burke, who was creating spaces and methods of healing for especially young girls of color who'd experienced sexual violence, but had no way to first even identify it as such, and second, to find the resources and safe spaces for healing from it. Her work began in the late 1990s in communities of color. I think she needs to be recognized as the founder of this movement in the United States. Um, so why did this, well, but why did the hashtag go, go viral? Um, so I really do want to think about that. Um, you know, it's important to, to, to note, I think, that that hashtag generated more than 2.3 million tweets from 85 countries in its first week, more than any other, even though there had been other social media campaigns for sexual assault survivors before that. Tarana Burke has actually grace, graciously described that tweet as a lightning bolt that gave life to the movement she started. Um, I think something about that that particular tweet, uh, maybe it was the moment in time, maybe it was the timing. Um, You know, I think in a sense, the tweet followed a lot of activism that had happened not only in the United States, but around the world. But the women's marches had happened shortly before that, you know, the the famous pussy hat marches in Washington, D.C. and also around the world. So you know, people were sort of acutely aware of the issue, you know, right around that time. Um, but also, I think it's really essential to note that sexual violence is widespread. It's endemic to virtually every society and culture. Um, current WHO statistics indicate that globally, about one in three women worldwide have been subjected to either physical and or sexual violence in their lifetime. One in three. And, it's, you know, it's harder to find the numbers for men as sexual violence is vastly underreported among male populations, but it's thought to be around one in six globally, probably higher. 
And sexual violence among trans communities are shockingly high at 50%. I'm quoting the US Office for Victims of Crime and it's likely to be very high in other countries as well, depending on the context. So sexual violence is experienced by people of all genders and sexualities. The incidence is even higher for those who are people of color, people with disabilities, children, people who are trans or non-binary, people who are homeless, people who are incarcerated, people who are refugees, others in precarious and vulnerable positions. And I think it was just that, you know, that widespread, you know, um, occurrence of this, this crime and the, you know, the sort of the awakening, the consciousness raising that had been happening in the months and years before that, that kind of came together in this hashtag. Mm -hmm. um, you've already spoken to this a little bit, but I wonder if you could say a bit more. How do culture and context affect experiences of sexual violence and, and the resistance to it? Yeah, um, I think one of the things to, to really think about is the fact that um, the, the research indicates that some survivors are more, you know, seen as more credible than others. And um, the, the, you know, so, you know, the, and the research supports this and certainly the hashtag and its kind of entailments supported as well that um, wealthy, straight, you know, white women from, you know, who, you know, who have high social status tend to be the most credible survivors, the most credible reporters of sexual assault. They're the ones whose cases are taken the most seriously, that are investigated, that are prosecuted and so on. And the farther you get from sort of that norm, the more difficulty people have in being believed, you know, they're credibility is questioned, they're, uh, they're not taken seriously, often the cases aren't, you know, picked up for prosecution, because that's a decision that can be made by police and prosecutors and others. Um, you know, in my book, I write about the way that people with disabilities, for example, the rates of sexual violence against people with disabilities is far higher than those for physically able people. Um, but, you know, they, they get comments like, you know, who, who would, who would, you know, who would want to, you know, you know, whatever assault you or who would want to have sex with you or, you know, who would, who would grope you like they're, they're disbelieved at much, you know, greater levels than other people. So, and um, assaults on, on trans people often happen by the very people who are supposed to be protecting them from mm -hmm. violence or, you know, in, in situations, um, you know, in institutional settings. And so, um, so yeah, culture and context is a lot has a lot to do with, you know, the way the way survivors are treated, victims and survivors are treated, and the way predators are, you know, the the assailants are treated as well. Yeah, yeah. Oh gosh. Well, thank you for starting us off there. And I, I'd like to turn now to Raquel. Um, how have women in Brazil reacted to the Me Too movement? Well, first of all, uh, thank you very much for okay. having me. He invited me to be part of this wonderful table. Uh, in Brazil, Me Too represented a strong and new energy for the denunciation of harassment, rapes, and feminicide. It added to the movement that had just emerged in the country with numerous groups in 2017, and which also preceded the election of the current president, which has been a setback in all aspects. We have had cases of harassment involving actors in TV shows, uh, but it is important to emphasize that all these movements involving the media were very important because the population of 
poor and black women and also other groups such as LGBTQIA+, found the strength to denounce years of suffering. In Brazil, this movement started in 2014 with a lot of hashtags movement. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, through these various movements, have women felt more empowered to report incidents of sexual harassment and sexual violence um, than was the case before these public movements? I think so, exactly. We can say that world environment was creating issue in, in groups felt more confident to denounce the violence they have suffered. I believe that social network were fundamental for in these aspects. Even for institutions such as the court and the police to manifest themselves because they started to have their action, all actions, monitored. You know, I think it's it, it's the number rising. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, when a woman at recognizing that social status makes a difference, that color makes a difference, but when a woman does come forward to report in a charge of sexual violence, what, what happens? What, what would be the traditional um, uh, path? Yes, in Brazil, it's important to emphasize that with this government, we had a great setback, like I told. But all the discussion forested by campaigns such as Me Too and many other local movements has worked to support denunciations. And today, there are numerous networks. This is really important to fight and support women in the other groups. This is very important issue because before all these movements, violence in general was mute, like Gigi told us, by shame, fear, and economic pressure. It's still not an easy path. There is a lot of hostility and blaming on part of the society, but there are also support and protection network for these women. Mm -hmm. Today we have many, many groups, especially in the favelas, that work to overcome the institutional fragility of receiving denouncements, uh, the, dif the difficulties in accessing health services, and the lack of motivation on part of families groups. No, it happens. Mm -hmm. uh, this network also provides financial support. It's really important. The fight against gender-based violence now in Brazil is on the agenda mm -hmm. for all group, feminist group in the country. Uh, we know the numbers continue to the number the numbers continue to be alarming, and have gotten worse during the pandemic time. Uh, like as many women have lost their jobs, is the majority, and stay indoor if they are abusers. Do uh, you know last year four women were killed per day? Hmm. So gender violence on rise is on rise in Brazil. 
with high number when racial and economic issue, issue are added. Black and poor women suffer more violence than the others. Yeah, yeah. You know, in a communication we had before the program, you told me that Me Too has triggered a new look at issues that had been generally accepted within the culture, um, uh, that reflected in such things as soap operas, music, and movies, attitudes and portrayals that weaken women and encourage bad male behavior. Um, could you go into that a little bit more? Oh, so nice. This is a very serious problem because our entertainment in general, we know, about it perpetuates crystallized thoughts in society's imagination. And these productions need to be reviewed, in my opinion. For example, last week, the famous Brazilian singer Chico Buarque decided to give up singing a song because he considered it had sexist aspects. Mm -hmm. And soon the same disposition was followed by other composers. I believe we have to act on this front as well, because gender violence is a structural violence, as you very well conceptualized. And for that reason, we also need to work on education level of boys and girls, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. um, you mentioned the political situation in Brazil that you said has been a setback for women's rights. Um, but in terms of the, the wider political and social sentiment, and also within uh, the area of industry, are industry leaders um, stepping forward to say it's time for us to make some changes? Uh, yes, we, for example, uh, we have a specific legislation no, about this, and it's not too old, it's recent, 30 years old, like uh, the most famous Maria da Penha law, but we need to recognize the large volume of campaigns, and if many of them reach in the court, there are still many under-reporting cases. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. A lot, a lot. And this government uh, also had, like I said, back in this area of punishment, a lot of problem with this. And with the process going slowly mm -hmm. and evolving cases, all the cases, feminicide, rape, domestic violence, all these cases uh, are growing in a slow way. Well, thank you very much for that. And, and I think now we'll turn to Rosemarie and ask you to tell us a little bit about the Me Too movement in France, um, the French equivalent to what we in America call Me Too. Um, tell us something about Balance Ton Port. Balance Ton Port. Well, first I'd like to thank Gigi for inviting me to participate and to uh, give the French perspective on this, which I think is actually quite fascinating, both for the movement, for the juridical response to the movement, to the backlash and then the implications for the French film industry uh, where Harvey Weinstein was uh, explicitly implicated. So the French corollary to the Me Too movement was launched in October uh, 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 2017 at the same moment that it was occurring here by a journalist whose name was Sandra Muller and her hashtag was balance ton peur. 
So that tag has been translated really well in the American press as squeal on your pig or expose your pig. <laughs> so Mueller came forward on Twitter in October uh, uh, 2017 and she revealed an incident that had occurred sometime before with what she indicated or suggested was a work associate and who had, um, had made sal salacious advances to her at a cocktail party. So this individual's name was Eric Brion, and he acknowledged having made unsavory remarks to her. And he did say that he was guilty of what he called heavy-handed flirting. Um, but um, he went ahead and he filed a defamation suit against her. So in September of 2019, a French court um, ruled that she had in fact defamed the man that she had exposed with her cheat and she was ordered to pay $20,000 in, uh, in um, in uh, damages and his legal fees. However, there is good news. <laughs> in January uh, uh, 2021, a higher court overturned that ruling and, 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 and said that she had not defamed him. And I, I just like to quote what the court said, which I think is lovely. He said, if Eric Brion suffered by being the first man denounced under balance ton port, Sandra Muller should be recognized as having acted in good faith. So there's this first response where it looked like the judicial system deeply embedded in patriarchal structures was going to give, enable this process to move forward and to discourage women from coming forward. That would be an impediment to know you're gonna to have to pay 20,000 euros at the end of, <laughs> of having denounced someone. But the courts then turned around and said no, and it seems to be recognizing a, 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 a key moment of change. And that this, I think, is a very productive moment for, for France and for Europe in general. So in the months following that October release of that tweet, she stirred a digital uprising by women who were seeking redress and recognition of what had happened to them. And that's where things get really culturally interesting. So from October to early January, from October 2017 to early January 2018, um, the movement flourished. And then on January 9th, in the pages of Le Monde, which is the uh, newspaper of record in France, highly respected, a group of 100 women wrote uh, what they call, called for a forum, a tribune, in Le Monde, which is, I think, I widely recognized as one of the most prestigious uh, journalistic venues in France, denouncing the movement and denouncing its excesses. And what is interesting about it is that there were two elements of the denunciation and the backlash to the movement. First of all, it, it included signatures from 100 women from all walks of professional and social life. So that would make you sit up and take notice. Um, and their claim was very similar to what we hear in certain quarters of American political culture about denouncing cancel culture. There was also a concern about censorship, a rising level of censorship, and that the, the, the claim was that this move to protect women was pushing women back into the position, into the status of victims, and that it that belonged to an older order of sexual mores and conventions and, and, and gender conventions that had been used against women for decades or for centuries, really, to uh, enable their subjugation. So what was interesting about this um, uh, tribune in, in Le Monde was that it drew a lot of attention because it had been signed by Catherine Deneuve. And uh, if you know French cinema in general, but 
world cinema, Catherine Deneuve is a screen legend. Um, and, and she came of age in the early 1960s when the new wave cinema was flourishing and where the new wave filmmakers were making a demand for sexual emancipation part of the project of reforming the culture. So her response to it was, um, it drew a lot of attention. But the other signatories went out in the press and she started to get very nervous about these women who had gone out to the press attacking the, the, the Balance Tempore movement. And a couple of days later, she wrote a, a personal letter to another really prominent um, left-wing journalistic venue called Liberation. And there she said, well, wait a minute, you know, I'm not for we do, you do need to draw a distinction between what the French call la drague, which is the culture of garden variety pickup culture and sexual assault. So she backtracked on it, but it put spotlight on the French film industry, which is of course where Harvey Weinstein had, uh, had been operating was, was in the, the French film industry. So what was really interesting about what Le Monde did and that I really appreciated as I went back and looked on this is they gave a forum very quickly opened that forum up and they called in, uh, they called one of their journalists to do an interview with one of the most renowned respected feminist historians in France, whose name is Michel Perrault. And in the interview, I think this, I would love to see this interview broadly um, or translated and broadly disseminated because she had really acute and very powerful insights about what was happening, what the Me Too movement was, what Balance Tempore movement was. But she said in the title of the article of the interview, she said that she was sidere which was flabbergasted, <laughs> gobsmacked by the lack of solidarity shown by the women, those 100 women with the other women who were reporting it. And what she said, just because it didn't happen to you doesn't mean it didn't happen. And that these very evolved, very well-educated women who had signed that document were turning a blind eye and perhaps to advance their own career interests in whatever uh, uh, way they were doing so she said what what is what was really wrong about this is this absence of sol social solidarity what was even more remarkable that i really loved about the statement is she said the me too movement is a is an événement it's an event in history and she linked it back to the movement since the 1970s for reproductive rights uh, against rape culture, against domestic violence, and all the, and she said the statistics on this are all still overwhelming today. And what she was arguing and very powerfully was that this is a moment of turning point in history and that what these women needed to recognize that the women who were rebelling were part of a long tradition in French society of demanding equal rights for women. And so it was, it was lovely to see that response and for Le Monde to have given her such a prominent form in which to have enunciated that. Mm, terrific. Um, we only have a couple of minutes left, but I wonder if you could share an incident you, you told me about that um, happened recently, um, vulgar, catcalling incident on the streets of Paris, which was captured on video, uh, and a man who actually uh, assaulted this young woman who stood up to him, and what that has uh, turned into, that whole episode has turned into in terms of uh, present day France. It's really very exciting, not what happened, of course, but it was a, I see it as this sort of third moment. You had the Balance Tempore uh, movement that erupted, that came in the fall of two, uh, 2017. 
the controversy with Catherine Deneuve and the film industry in, in, in early 2018. And then in the summer of 2000, you could see the discourse percolating throughout the culture. And the scene was, it was just uh, in the 19th arrondissement in Paris, a woman was coming back from work and a man grunted at her. And she responded, she thought under her breath with ta gueule, which means shut up. Okay, and she thought she was she was just going to do her thing and move on. The man picked up a glass ashtray and threw it at her and missed her just by a few inches. And she kept walking and he then followed her and confronted her and struck her so that she fell over. I mean, she, she didn't fall completely over, but this moment went absolutely viral. And it was, uh, she went back and she got the, the CT um, the video and she then launched it out on, 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 on Twitter herself. And it went around France, around the world. And what was great about it is that it coincided with France's, uh, what's, they actually have a ministry of cultural <laughs> equality and Marlene Schiappa as her name had been spearheading a move in French legislature to make, to impose fines for this kind of street harassment. And it, it gender, engendered lots of commentary from French officials saying, you know, women have the, the, the street is a public place. We women do not have to be insulted and abused in that place. And Within weeks, they had passed legislation that imposed fines on, on men in France. It's now universal between 100 and 795 or 90 and 70, 795 euros, which is 100 to 800 and some dollars for any kind of catcalling and public um, accosting of women. So I think the response of the French legislature in the French system is really very interesting. You're dealing with, with older structures of thought regarding gender systems, but the French state, which is a, a really vital, vital hybrid social democratic state intervenes in these circumstances. In this case, I think they, they did the right thing. So I think the movement has had really interesting responses in France. So I hope that helps clarify the yeah. situation there. Absolutely, wow. Well, we could talk for hours. I know this is so, <laughs> so incredibly interesting. Thank you all. Um, I wanna say thank you to Gigi Durham, to Raquel Paiva and to Rosemary Scullion. Gosh, great way to start us off. And to those of you watching and listening, please stay with us because we'll be back in just a moment with part two of World Canvas, the global implications of Me Too. Thank you all. Welcome back to World Canvas. My name is Joan Kerr and World Canvas is a production of international programs at the University of Iowa. Tonight's topic is the global implications of Me Too. In this part of the program, our guests will speak to specific cases and challenges in different global contexts. So allow me to introduce my guests. Heiwal Che uh, from the University of Iowa is a feminist scholar, the director of the Korean Studies Research Network, and the author of Gender Politics at Home and Abroad. Welcome, Heiwal. Thank you. And Dean Fien Mulupi from the University of Maryland is a PhD student who has written on sexual harassment and violence in Kenya, Nigeria, and South Africa. And welcome to you, Dean Fien. Thank you. Mm -hmm. And our third guest is Rachel Phillips, a PhD student at Cardiff University and a research fellow at London South Bank University, who's conducting research on media coverage of Me Too in the United Kingdom. Uh, welcome to you, Rachel, and thanks for joining us so late in your, your time zone. Uh, hi, hey, well, <laughs> yeah. Uh, can you tell us how has the Me Too movement been received in Korea? Yeah, uh, first of all, thanks so much for the invitation. Uh, it's such an honor to join this fantastic panel today. 
Um, like in many parts of the world, uh, the global stretch, uh, stretch of the uh, Me Too movement uh, really gave uh, Korean women uh, some strength uh, to stand up and share the experience and join the movement. But um, as Professor Doham uh, mentioned in the first section, uh, that's that sort of kind of so-called little movement uh, happening uh, before. There were so many similar uh, movements uh, in the past. So I just wanted to share with you just a couple of examples. Uh, for example, October 2016, uh, under the Twitter hashtag sexual violence in went viral. So people started to share their experience of sexual violence in various sectors like art, literature, university, journalism, all different kinds. And so that sort of some uh, hashtag movement kind of generated very significant public discourse on sexual violence in everyday life, but also created uh, some sort of a coalition or um, uh, solidarity uh, among the victims. Uh, the other example I'd like to mention, um, and also I personally think uh, probably most prominent and historically significant precursor to the current uh, Me Too movement is related to uh, military sexual uh, slavery uh, during World War II. So during the war time, uh, uh, a large number of Asian women, uh, many of whom were Korean women, were drafted by force to serve Japanese soldiers on the battlefront. And of course, uh, they had a just horrendous experience uh, at the, uh, during the war time. But the traumatic history of sexual violence uh, has been almost completely buried, dismissed and condemned for many, many decades. So it was only in 1990, um, after you know, almost like more than 50 years um, uh, of the end of the war, uh, that Kim Hak-soon, a former sex slave, came forward to share her story publicly. So after she came forward, one by one, uh, former sex slaves started to share the experience, uh, their uh, experience um, uh, in public, uh, through the media, but also they share this continuing trauma they uh, experience uh, still, but also sense of violence because their stories have been suppressed and dismissed for many, many uh, decades. So as we know, um, you know, in 1990s, there was no such a thing, such a hashtag, me too, um, but their testimonials uh, by these women made history. And in a significant way, they may have provided inspiration uh, for the current uh, contemporary movement. But also I want to mention that these uh, sexual slavery uh, system and the victims they also created this kind of global movement, creating international coalition among of activism, among scholars, NGOs, lawyers, and students in order to redress the violence and stigma that these women had been uh, subjected to. Mm -hmm. And am I correct in thinking that there is an appalling name given to these women? They were comfort women. Is that the term that was used? That is true. And I, intentionally avoid the use of that yes, term. Yes, yes. Um, I mean, literally yeah. we kind of comfort these Japanese soldiers, uh, but it is uh, so yeah. demeaning and yeah. so- um, uh, So inaccurate. Yeah. But I think it, you are absolutely right. Conventionally popularly known as so-called comfortable women. And that debate and that controversy is still, uh, still going on. And 
who knows? Um, yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you. Um, are there any particular features of Me Too-like movements in Korea that, that make Korea particularly interesting in this discussion? Yeah, it was really fascinating to hear some of the cases in Brazil and France and, and uh, US in general. Um, and so uh, there's some kind of a common experience, but also I feel there are some unique aspects uh, of the uh, Me Too movement in South Korea. And the first one is the Me Too movement in South Korea took off after public prosecutor Seo Ji Hyun uh, went public uh, in a TV interview to share her experience of sexual harassment by her superior in the, in the Ministry of Justice. Hmm. And so that was uh, January 29, uh, 2018. So the interview sent a very strong message to the public that if Seo Ji Hyun, an elite among the elite uh, in South Korean society, experienced such a humiliating and horrendous sexual harassment at the workplace, who wasn't a target, a potential target. So that uh, really, I mean, her interview uh, really opened the door to virtually every woman uh, to talk about sexual violence and harassment uh, in their lifetime. Mm -hmm. And also in that uh, interview, she mentioned that uh, it took her eight years to come forward because for a long time, she was wondering whether she did something wrong. But eventually she actually realized it's not her fault, there is, systematic, institutionalized, and also ongoing uh, sexual violence uh, every, everywhere uh, in our uh, life. Mm -hmm. Another feature um, of the Milton woman I wanted to mention is this glaring tension among progressive intellectuals, politicians, and feminists when some of the most iconic public figures of social justice movement have been accused of sexual violence. I wanted to emphasize these iconic figures of uh, social justice, uh, they've been accused uh, of social, um, uh, sexual violence. And, and I think in some sense, I mean, just as a kind of a quick uh, background, uh, now South Korea is enjoying a uh, thriving democracy, but uh, for a long time, uh, South Korea was a military dictatorship from 1960s and to early 1990s. So during that time, those who involved in or participated or lead uh, democracy movement. Uh, they were, got, they were uh, jailed, they were tortured, uh, sometimes they were killed. So those who survived the tremendously turbulent political transformation to democracy are uh, held up almost like a heroes or more or less bearers of a morality, you know, high moral standards they have. So they were kind of icon of a social justice and democracy. But once the Me Too movement took off in 19, uh, 2018, some of those most prominent figures uh, got um, accused uh, of their uh, sexual harassment and uh, sexual violence. They include some very prominent uh, presidential candidates, a former mayor of Seoul, capital of South Korea, and was a very renowned poet who has been annually nominated uh, for Nobel Prize in Literature. So of course, um, I mean, I think in some sense, uh, is a kind of a sad truism that uh, uh, women's voices and women's suffering have been dismissed and kind of a, uh, kind of a set aside. Uh, and also uh, these uh, very sexist behavior of even these iconic figures have been pluralist for many uh, decades. Mm -hmm. But still, 
the revelation of this um, uh, kind of horrendous history of uh, sexual violence committed by these iconic figures uh, has sent a really strong uh, shockwaves. Um, but also uh, uh, their, their uh, stories also make it kind of a, uh, uh, and pretty clear that uh, we have a very long way ahead of us. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you. Um, knowing the culture uh, of South Korea as you do, how notable is it that those in this movement and going back many, many years, uh, all of these women who have stepped forward in very difficult circumstances to say things that were maybe whispered quietly before, maybe not spoken out loud ever. What, what does that feel like to you, knowing that this is now happening? You know, as a uh, gender historian, I have been always struggling to, uh, to find women's voices in archives. Oftentimes their voices and their experience, their lives are kind of, uh, it's, it's not there. Um, mm-hmm. But excavating and uh, kind of trying to put in things together to create a story to imagine what kind of life they had. So this has been a constant kind of a, a struggle uh, for feminist historians and uh, many other scholars here. So when these women came forward, they sharing uh, tremendously horrendous history, uh, the, the experience of sexual violence. And, and so this is a kind of another example uh, we learn uh, what it means to bring out uh, some of those uh, tragic stories to light and what challenges and opportunities we have, what actions we need to take uh, to make progress uh, toward uh, gender justice. So this is a kind of a very uh, clear reminder uh, of the, uh, uh, you know, what, what is ahead. But also I just wanted to mention that nowadays, or at least in recent decades, uh, some people think that, you know, feminism is obsolete, but this little movement uh, uh, has been such a powerful reminder of the still strong, very strong and ongoing, unchanging endurocentrism embedded in virtually all aspects of life, uh, work and relationship. Mm-hmm. Wow, thank you so much, Hewell. That's uh, so helpful. And, and I think now we'll turn to you, Jinfin. And I wonder if you can tell us about your research into uh, various parts of Africa and sexual violence as it appears and uh, as it is dealt with or perhaps not dealt with in these places. I wonder if you could start with your knowledge of uh, South Africa. Thank you so much for having me here. Um, this is a very important conversation. Um, my research um, has focused on South Africa and a few other African countries, primarily on workplace sexual harassment, um, particularly within the media industry, as well as analyzing how rape and other forms of sexual violence are reported in the media. Um, I've also been looking at how African feminists are using uh, digital tools And um, when we think about the Me Too movement and specifically the hashtag explosion in 2017, we did not see a massive uptick um, in Africa, uh, similar to other parts of the world. And this is um, partly because of, um, you know, the realities within uh, the African context where there's, uh, uh, you know, a culture of silencing victims, a lot of victim blaming, and a general tolerance for gendered violence. Um, but that does not mean that you know, people are not organizing and um, actively um, uh, fighting um, rape culture, both uh, online and offline. Um, so in South Africa, for instance, in 2019, we had a very big movement a campaign called Am I Next? 
Um, and this hashtag, my next basically, um, you know, went viral in the aftermath of the kidnapping, rape, and murder of a 19-year-old college student uh, named Uyenene Muratiana. Um, Uyenene uh, had gone to the post office and uh, was raped and murdered by a postal worker. Okay. And this was just is just really one of um, many cases that happen in South Africa on a daily basis. Um, South Africa is a very violent society partly because of its history with uh, colonialism, apartheid systems, um, economic inequality, uh, poor policy, and other issues. Um, according to data, it has one of the highest rates of uh, sexual violence um, and femicide in the world. So about 116 rapes are reported per day, um, and a woman is murdered um, every three hours in South Africa. So. A lot of women, you know, were coming on social media um, to ask, am I next? And um, the, you know, this movement really grew offline as well. There was a lot of uh, matches and demonstrations in, in front of parliament, um, across university campuses, on the streets. Um, there was a World Economic Forum uh, meeting taking place in Cape Town at the time. You know, uh, business and political leaders from around the world, the president of South Africa um, giving a speech there and people came and, um, you know, asked this question and demanded uh, justice for victim survivors. Um, and, you know, I, I don't know if this will eventually turn out to be something that can be called a success, but uh, on January 28th, just um, a few days ago, uh, President Ramaphosa signed three new laws, which um, you know were introduced in Parliament shortly after um, these matches and and the murder of Uyenene. This is you know part of the laws that came out as a response, and um, according to activists, this might um, you know improve the ways in which uh, sexual uh, offenses and domestic violence um, is handled by the police and the judicial system. Um, in addition to the Am I Next campaign, um, there's, you know, many other movements and protests, um, you know, that have occurred and continue to happen in, in South Africa. For example, in uh, 2016, um, there was a list uh, called the RU reference list. RU is in reference to Rhodes University. And basically this list was a list of, um, you know, potential people suspected to be offenders um, and, and and really this movement again was challenging rap culture and abuse within university campuses um, there was another movement called hashtag men or trash movement so we've really seen quite a bit um, in South Africa in terms of uh, women and activists uh, organizing online and offline to mm -hmm. to challenge rap culture and to demand justice and um, to have their voices heard and I know you've also been studying these issues in Kenya, I, and I understand there was a recent case in which a prominent person in the media was fired after victim blaming on the air. Uh, can you tell us more about that situation? Yeah. yeah. Now, I should mention that um, one of my studies um, focused on Kenya um, was um, a survey on the experience uh, experiences of sexual harassment within newsrooms. And what we found was that uh, 80% of our survey respondents, female survey respondents, stated uh, they had experienced sexual harassment at least once in, in their workplace. So this is something coming from colleagues and, and bosses. 
um, and 40% said they had experienced it more than five times. So we already know from our research um, that sexual harassment is pervasive within newsrooms um, in Kenya. But this recent case is rather unique in, in the sense that um, we actually saw action happening within days, which is why I thought it would be interesting to talk about. So a very prominent um, radio uh, presenter, someone who was a very big profile, a celebrity, uh, and his two colleagues, um, you know, hosting a morning radio show. Um, this guy who's very, you know, prominent, makes a, a joke, a comment really, um, suggesting that uh, a woman who had been thrown off the 12th floor of a building mm -hmm. by a man she had gone on a date with because she refused to have sex with him. This radio presenter suggested that these kinds of violence happen because in his words, Kenyan women are too loose, um, and too willing and too desperate. Of course, um, a lot of people were angered by this comment because it is classic victim blaming. Um, and, and, you know, those are, you know, a lot of reprimanding on social media. And what was quite interesting is that immediately we saw the radio station fast suspending him and his two colleagues. But then a, a key advertiser withdrew, um, you know, paused their business with that radio group uh, that involved any of these three people, um, these three DJs, and said, you know, we need proof that you're going to handle these kinds of, uh, um, you know, actions and comments uh, and that you're going to train your staff to be you know more gender sensitive and we saw the regulator coming in and, and punishing the radio station they were actually fined nine thousand um, dollars and ultimately the radio station fired these this um three presenters so that's quite unique because usually what happens and you know from research we know that when the offender is you know someone with a very big name and someone who brings in money to the media house it's very rare that they will actually be punished but we saw in this case that um that action was taken so this actually moves from people you know organizing online to an advertiser stepping into a regulator stepping into a media house actually having to fire people and and you know train their staff to do better yeah terrific i know there are other examples we could talk about in in other parts of africa but i wonder if we should go to rachel next and if there's time maybe we can uh, cycle back to a little more of that uh Jean -Fing. Okay. Um, so, uh, Rachel Phillips, thank you very much for joining us today um, from the UK. Um, I thought I might just start up by, by uh, making the statement that, as, as we all know, many people in America here know that there is a very active and vicious tabloid press in uh, the UK. They were operating long before me, too. Um, but I wonder how this kind of transnational movement against harassment and sexual violence has been portrayed in British media, both the tabloid press and the more traditional, uh, respectable press. Um, so again, first of all, thank you so much for having me here. I am honoured and slightly terrified to be amongst such wonderful, generous scholars. And I just want to start off what I have to say today by briefly resting on the laurels of Sarada Benedictus, who did a paper on exactly that, looking at the first six months of coverage. And one of the most interesting things um, that I pulled out of that is that kind of nearly a third of all the stories that she looked at 
um, whereby a singular tabloid um, newspaper called um, the Daily Mail. And actually of that coverage, half of it was sort of broadly positive um, in a very vague and non-specific sense, um, but broadly supportive of the Me Too movement. Whether that is broadly supportive of feminism in general, um, a different, <laughs> different question entirely. Mm-hmm. Um, what I'm looking at in my project is a little bit later on in the timeline of Me Too, I'm looking at um, specifically the trial of Harvey Weinstein and how that's being portrayed over in the UK. And overall, I've found that kind of across um, all newspapers, there's been a focus on positioning it as a, at the very least, an overseas problem. It's not a British problem. It's, uh, it's something that happens over there. And um, a lot of times it's specifically referred to as an American problem. Lots of references to Hollywood and the media environment without much consideration or even just comparison to a British context. Um, I've also noticed that there are a lot of opinion pieces that refer to other industries, even during this time where coverage was meant I suppose meant to be about the trial. It was meant to focus on what are very specific events um, within the timeline of, of, of a trial coverage. Um, lots, there were lots of references to whether other industries were having their Me Too moment. Um, there was a, a few incidents in, in football, for example. Um, and there were just an incredible number of backlash articles. You know, is it time's up for Me Too? Uh, is this the end of Me Too? Like, what, you know, what, you know, if, if Harvey, doesn't end up going to jail is that a failure of of this political movement and that is a question that became a lot more resonant with me in in a kind of in a very problematic way because I found myself falling into this trap of um, feeling like there should be some kind of um, judicial consequences um, without really thinking more deeply about um, about what that means in terms of, of policing. Um, and it's a it's something that I've I've seen there'd be kind of a lack of critical interrogation of, even in the wake of things like um, the George Floyd process in the US, Black Lives Matter in the UK, um, the kind of very um, very difficult to deal with anti-protest laws that have been passed in the UK as a as a result of those kind of in-world reactions and kind of extensions of online political action. Mm-hmm. And I, yeah, it's, it's, a, very, it's a very difficult um, thing to address, I think. Um, in the papers as well, there was a lot of kind of hand-wringing about the jury selection and the idea of people serving this judicial process being somehow influenced by taking part or even just knowing about digital activism like the idea that if you had heard of the Me Too movement that you shouldn't be serving on Harvey's jury or the idea that um, if you'd even heard of of the people or the um, defendant even was a question um, that was asked at the jury selection have you have you heard of this man you know do you recognize him um, that you should be kind of pushed aside from um, participating in that process. Mm-hmm. You know, there you shared with me a case that I'm afraid I, I really haven't followed and don't know a lot about, but the case of a young woman who was murdered, a terrible case, Sarah Everard. And I wonder if you could briefly tell us what happened to Sarah and, um, and 
what has happened since in terms of um, the, the person who has been found guilty and, uh, and so on. But then this protest question uh, arises in relation mm. to the, the case of Sarah Everard. Yeah, so um, I mean, it's never it's never been fantastic, but um, we are kind of in the midst of a real epidemic of um, femicide at the moment in the UK um, against women. Um, to name a few high-profile cases, we've had Sarah Everard, um, Sabina Nessa, Bieber Henry, Nicole Smallman, um, Ashling Murphy. A few of these names would be more familiar to you than than others, probably, um, and. The reason I mentioned Sarah Everard in my emails to you was because um, for me, it really brings to light these dual demands of um, desiring and needing to abolish, defund or reimagine the police state at the same time as being in the middle of this epidemic of fatal male sexual violence and not having appropriate avenues to recourse for that, whatever those avenues might be. And the reason that I think um, the case, the horribly tragic case of Sarah Everard is a case that brings that into focus is because um, she is a young woman, was a young woman who was raped and killed in March um, of 2021 by a serving police officer, uh, Wayne Cousins, who was afterwards um, fired, obviously. Um, and she was arrested at the time under the pretense of breaking COVID-19 regulations. Um, as a as a kind of direct response to that, there was um, a memorial that was organized, um, I believe by Sisters Uncut um, in London, um, which was attended by a lot of people, um, but it was broken up by the police and several people were, were arrested uh, at this kind of peaceful memorial. And there are a lot of quite distressing um, photographs and, um, and videos of, of this happening. And it really eroded a lot of confidence um, in specifically the, the Met and the London police and, um, and a confidence in you know, our police commissioner, Chris the Dick, who has been called, if you, uh, there's a, quite a good hashtag about it called Dick Out, which is calling for her, um, her resignation. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I've been, I've been looking at that case a little, little bit as well. And, and trying to figure out where where that fits um, in the UK's context of digital activism, um, the kind of you know protest culture on the streets, and and how we can we can do those things as well under the constraints of a pandemic, um, and what what effect it has when um, the digital avenues of of protest are minimised and kind of. Um, told in the press that they don't achieve anything and that it's pointless and it's armchair activism and it's clicktivism and selectivism um, when, you know, also we're not allowed sometimes to go outside of our houses um, and to, to meet up with people outdoors. So what, what options do we have? Yeah, yeah. Wow. Uh, well, thank you, Rachel. Um, we have just a, a moment or two. Um, is, would anyone like to add anything further before we break for this segment? and move into the next one. I am so grateful for these for these uh, stories from many parts of the world and for your expertise. So um, thank you very much, uh, Rachel Phillips, Hewal Che, and Dinfin Mulupi. Thank you for being with us. And to all of you watching or listening, stay with us. We'll be back in just a moment with the final panel to discuss the global implications of Me Too. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.
Welcome back to World Canvas from International Programs. My name is Joan Kerr, and this is the third segment of our program on the global implications of Me Too. In this final part of the program, our guests will be considering the upsides, downsides, and the future of transnational solidarity. Joining us are Adrian Wing from the University of Iowa. She's a law professor and the director of the University of Iowa Center for Human Rights. Thank you, Adrian, for being here. Uh, our next guest is Pallavi Guha from Towson University. She is a journalism professor and the author of Hear Me Too, with expertise on Me Too in India. Welcome, Pallavi. And we bring back Gigi Durham. Uh, you met her in our first segment from the University of Iowa. Gigi is a feminist scholar, a journalism professor, and the author of Me Too, The Impact of Rape Culture in the Media. And uh, this is a good time to say thank you, a very, very big thank you, Gigi, for helping us assemble such an amazing uh, group of guests this evening. So thank you. And uh, Adrian, uh, let me go to you first. When we talk about sexual harassment and sexual violence, the response to it and the search for justice, it can be tempting to speak in generalities. Is that a mistake? Well, first, uh, thank you uh, for having me. I join all my fellow panelists uh, in thanking the organizers, especially Gigi and you, of course, Joan. And this has just been fantastic. I'm so excited to be in the last session. Mm -hmm. So uh, yes, it is a problem to speak in generalities. Uh, I'm an American and I covered at a very age when they were talking about all the women, they weren't necessarily talking about black women. And when they talked about all the blacks, they were not necessarily talking about black women. Uh, so what you're getting at is there's the problem of essentialism. It's, it's easy psychologically and lazy uh, to just say, oh, well, this happens to all women or all Blacks or, or Latinos or all Brazilians or French or whatever group you're talking about. But that's not very useful. Uh, I'm the editor of two anthologies. One is called Critical Race Feminism and the other is Global Critical Race Feminism, both from NYU Press. And these anthologies focus on the status of women of color, whether they be U.S., uh, women of color or globally, whether they are women in the developing world or women who could be from the developing world who are in uh, European or other countries. And so uh, we look at this problem of essentialism that by lumping uh, all the women together, you, you lose the different experiences uh, that that each each group is feeling. And these differ not only within a particular group in a country, but uh, it can vary between groups that seem very similar in different parts of the same country, et cetera. Um, and so in critical race feminism, we look actually at the intersection of different kinds of discrimination and oppression. And those intersections can be not just race or ethnicity or gender, but also other identities such as sexual orientation, color, class, religion, age, disability, and lots of other statuses or identities. And it's only when you look at all the intersections on any issue, much less something like Me Too, uh, that you begin to be able to say, how would I fix this? Uh, taking into account all of this uh, incredible diversity of uh, women and, and what is to them. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So how frustrating is it to you 
that the name of Tarana Burke, which Gigi uh, introduced earlier in the program, and, and we hope will be a familiar name to everyone um, if it isn't already, but how frustrating is it that her name, a uh, woman from the Bronx, black woman who really started this Me Too um, phrase more than a decade before it went viral as a movement is so little known to the American public. There are all kinds of people who are, quote, credited with Me Too and their brave stance, but Tarana Burke is not a name that I think just easily comes to people across the country. Mm -hmm. Well, as a black woman, uh, this is the story of my, uh, we are often invisible. Uh, we often marginalized. Uh, Tarana is from the Bronx, New York. Uh, my mother and her family, four generations of us are from the Bronx. And so that's looked at as an, an evil uh, criminal place where, you know, nice uh, New Yorkers would not go, and she's from that place uh, as well. And when Tyzine started featuring the women from Me Too, they didn't even put her on the cover. Mm -hmm. They put other women on the cover. And now why was that? Uh, it has to do with something called what the, I call in my work stature identity. It's how you look based on the culture that you're in. So needless to say, a movie star like Alyssa Milano or lots of models and celebrities, they uh, are considered beautiful in American culture. Tarana Burke is uh, not looking like, you know, Alyssa Milano and she's dark brown. She's heavy set. She has on her face, she has severe acne scars. So she has a, a variety of features that are all considered not beautiful. And so they literally erased her from the cover of the magazine. So this invisibility uh, is, is typical in all areas, unfortunately, in, including this. And so I would like to think we were gonna get rid of that, but it exists in, in every culture, including the fact that in every culture, lighter skinned people are treated better and so, you know, maybe if she looked like Holly Berry, uh, who meets white stand of, of beautiful, uh, maybe it would have been a little different, but maybe not because Holly Berry is still a, 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 a black woman. So it, it's frustrating for not just me or for black women, but for all of us who are from groups that are often made invisible and not given credit not given credit in the workplace for what we do. Everyone I'm sure who's a woman has experienced what it's like. You're at a meeting, you come up with an idea, everybody ignores it. And then the first man that says it, all of a sudden, what a great idea Bob has when he took that idea from somebody else. So, uh, you know, it may take centuries <laughs> deal with the way that it should be uh, dealt with and eliminated. Yeah. Um, so how is a black woman's experience of harassment and sexual violence when it comes to the justice side of things? How is it different from what a white woman might experience? It's actually totally different because black people in America face a disproportionate amount of discrimination in the criminal legal system. We don't even call it the criminal justice system. If you want to call it something, call it the criminal injustice system. So we are on every single criteria disproportionately in that system, ending up in prison, you know, getting longer sentences, et cetera. So uh, because of this, Black people, including me, 
do not trust the system. So I, even as a tenured full professor at the University of Iowa for 35 years, would not imagine going to the police to help me. Mm. I would never imagine doing that. I wasn't raised to do that. I have not raised my children and my grandchildren because unfortunately to this minute, that system is against us and I'm more likely to get killed by the police for breathing, for walking, for talking, for anything. And so this is of course quite, quite tragic and it affects us with uh, issues of harassment or sexual uh, violence and people are shocked when I say even I with all my years as a professor and 40 years total as a lawyer would not in think of invoking the system if I was a victim of of sexual violence wow yeah that that's tragic um, do you have hope that the future can be better for black women dealing with sexual harassment or violence well, I, I would like to think it'll be a little bit better as we get more black women who are in different professions. Um, of course, we're very excited right now that a black woman might get on the Supreme Court and they are all eminently, incredibly well qualified. Um, on the other hand, you know, we have Kamala Harris as the first black and the first Indian vice president. But, you know, that's just one person. These are just token people in positions. And we're talking about fighting centuries of heteropatriarchy. So in my view, I'm not totally pessimistic, but we have to realize it may take centuries fighting this system. We're not going to do it in our lifetime or the lifetime of our students or anything like that. And so we all have to focus on the commitment to struggle against this kind of discrimination. We'll each be judged on how we struggled in this multi-generational fight against these evils. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you, Adrian. Um, and now I'd like to turn to Pallavi. Pallavi Guha and uh, your research into Me Too takes us to India. Um, is there a powerful Me Too movement in India? Well, uh, first, I want to start by thanking all of you. Thank you for inviting me to this panel, Gigi, moderating it, Joanne. And um, I'm really excited to be uh, sharing space with all of you, with leading feminist scholars. And after Adrian's very powerful, uh, you know, thoughts and uh, sharing her research, I'm kind of, you know, coming in a little cold. <laughs> uh, so, um, but a lot of it resonates. Uh, so um, when you ask that if, if it has been a powerful Me Too movement in India, let me start by saying that it, is, uh, it started in 2017 as part of LOSHA, the list of sexual harassers in academia. Uh, when Raya Sarkar, she came forward to share the list of various sexual harassers in academia in India and outside of India who were of Indian origin. And it started by becoming a part of Me Too movement. But um, then somewhere between, you know, 2017 and 2018, it started kind of, you know, it, it had a very lukewarm response in India. Then in 2018, when the hashtag MeToo movement, uh, India movement started specifically, when Sandhya Menon, uh, she started that hashtag, shared it on Twitter, focusing on sexual harassment and sexual assault in newsrooms, uh, in the media industry, that is when it uh, started picking up. So um, I analyzed the global news and Indian news search um, of the hashtag MeToo movement as part of my book. 
And you could see that from October 2017 until September of 2018, it was like this, you know, it was kind of waves, little bit of waves, but it, it was maintaining the news search as well as the Facebook conversations. They were kind of maintaining some bit of consistency. And then you suddenly see a peak in September of 2018, up until um, October of 20, um, 2018, you know, for a month and month and a half, when um, people were sharing in India a lot more on sexual harassment, sexual assault. So that is when uh, the conversations around sexual harassment, assault, issues of inclusivity, uh, they started opening up in the context of hashtag uh, MeTooIndia movement. So it was a robust movement then, um, and especially when women from lower caste and um, lower cl class, especially uh, Dalit women, they uh, started sharing uh, the price they have been paying, you know, the injustices through the systems, and uh, also sharing that hashtag, hashtag MeTooIndia, that kind of um, changed things around. So yes, it, uh, it was a powerful movement around that time, you know, when it peaked, but now again, it's kind of, uh, I would say it's again, that consistent lukewarm response, it's back to it again. Hmm. Yeah, that was what I was wondering. Has it has it you know maintained a, a certain kind of power and strength? Uh, we were talking earlier about examples of uh, popular culture that uh, have um, uh, that have that have played into a certain cultural acceptance of uh, you know demeaning women or not giving women credit and uh, sexualizing women and so on. Um, what about the film industry in in India? We all know that that's a very big industry, you know, Bollywood and so on. Have you seen that there's been any um, change within that industry during this period? Uh, so a lot of uh, women, you know, they came forward, uh, you know, uh, and several big names were accused, uh, whether they were directors or they were actors. And um, what really happened, you know, they were accused, then they, these, um, they, there were cases, police cases against them that happened. But each one of them were, uh, you know, they were like sex free. There was no case. There was no conviction. Nothing happened. Mm -hmm. So all of those people who were accused, they're back to doing what they are doing. So they're back in the media business. They're back in the industry. And uh, there is no follow up. So, uh, you know, it's everything is like, you know, back to square one, it seems. Yeah. Um, and uh, these are also some of the people who are very strong and vocal about women's rights and women's empowerment. You see that happening on one hand and on the other hand, you know, they're um, they're accused when they're accused. They are like, oh, either I did not understand that this was not consensual, which is mind blowing. <laughs> that, oh, I didn't understand, or it is like, uh, you know, if, oh, if I've hurt you, then I'm sorry. Mm. Mm -hmm. And so, so is there is there um, a lot of backlash then against women who've made claims against these famous personalities uh, to the to the women who have brought something forward? Uh, are they sort of forced to disappear from public life? So there have been backlashes and it's not just, um, you know, it's not, it's not just kind of only in the entertainment industry. Mm -hmm. So that backlash that has also happened at, in academia. So Raya Sarkar, who started that 2017 and the list uh, she started, mm -hmm. she had to withdraw that list uh, because there were open letters and backlash that uh, 
sharing a list is not due diligence because there are uh, sexual harassment and sexual assault victims and survivors who are just sharing that list without uh, naming themselves. So they're anonymous, but they are sharing the names of their harassers mm. and abusers. So that's not a fair thing to do. So mm. she had to uh, definitely withdraw that list um, as far as I remember correctly. And um, there have been some women um, in the news industry, I know, they left the news industry for good uh, because they were sexually harassed. And again, the same thing, uh, the editors or whoever, the supervisors, uh, the consequences were like, you know, they were transferred. Mm-hmm. No one knows, like there was, there was no conviction or there, you know, they were not asked to leave. Mm-hmm. So most of the time, the women... Uh, who you know who were the victims as well as the survivors they had to leave mm-hmm. uh, some left the newsrooms or you know wherever the media industry some left the the industry as a whole they're just doing something else completely something else mm-hmm. but then they shared all of this during the hashtag me to india movement through blogs and you know other posts through websites not just through twitter and facebook but also through uh, through through a couple of uh, news blogs. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much, Pallavi. Um, well, let's see if we can bring Gigi back into this. And um, uh, such an interesting conversation from the, the first moment on. What are some of the common threads that we've heard tonight? Some of the things that really stick out to you, Gigi? Yeah, I mean, I'm just so grateful to the panelists for this lively, thoughtful, important conversation um, and for all we've learned about the Me Too movement and feminist activism against unwanted sexual violence and how it plays out in different countries and cultures, I think some takeaways for me, Joan, included the reminder that while the media perpetuate rape culture in many ways, they're also the sites of powerful feminist resistance all over the world. Um, and that journalism is a key part of that, as Rosemary noted with Le Monde, as our social media, as Dinfin pointed out with the new laws in South Africa and Pallavi was just you know, speaking about, um, that there's a history to sexual assault survivors testimony that underpins me too, as Hewell reminded us with the Korean women who spoke out about their experiences of sexual slavery as far back you know, in World War II, um, that race, ethnicity, sexual orientation, gender identity, other vectors of identity, still affect survivors' experiences and intersectionality and specificity have to be part of our thinking, as as Adrian was saying. Um, And, um, you know, that we need to be thinking about the paradoxes of carceral justice and anti-rape activism, as Rachel mentioned, that perpetrators often face no consequences, as Pallavi just noted. So, I mean, there are just so many things that I'm thinking about, you know, listening to everyone, and that the struggle is ongoing everywhere. I think, you know, Joan, one thing I, I kind of wanted to bring up about Me Too is the idea of breaking survivor silences. Because, um, you know, for Tarana Burke, the words Me Too were, were crucial. Um, she says, on one side, it's a bold declarative statement that I'm not ashamed and I'm not alone. But on the other side, it's a statement from survivor to survivor that says, I see you, I hear you, I understand you, or I'm here for you, and I get it. Um, so she knew that there was rare power in finding those words you know, to speak the truth of sexual violence and using them to build a support system for healing. Um, but, you know, for the most part, her work was about finding the support in safe private spaces and building connections among survivors. Um, 
in those private places. But by contrast, when Alyssa Milano sent out that tweet and all these hash, you know, social media movements we're talking about, that's out there, that's in public. And I think there's really a key difference between private healing and public speech. And if you're a public survivor, putting your thoughts and feelings out there on social media is really risky. So that highly visible hashtag, hashtag me too, was important. Like it sparked a worldwide consciousness raising that has had some powerful effects. Uh, I think without victims feeling empowered to go public, people like Larry Nasser and Harvey Weinstein would never have been convicted. And I think we're all inclined to take sexual violence more seriously as a consequence of the public nature of this movement. But I, it was like easier and safer for people like Alyssa Milano and Ashley Judd mm -hmm. and Megan Kelly or for like Olympic gymnasts to publicly disclose, disclose their assaults. Mm -hmm. And I think even for these people, it was it took a long time. It was really difficult. But then when you think about you know, they were protected by their fame and wealth. But when you think about how much blowback that public disclosure brings to, you know, other people, more marginalized people, um, people of color and, you know, people from LGBTQIA communities, you know, that has the effect of re-traumatizing and re-silencing. So one thing I feel like we need to talk about is how to make disclosure safer for people who are already vulnerable and who are already more susceptible to sexual violence. And I want to thank my PhD student, Ange Melinda, for helping me to think more carefully about this issue. I think that's really important. Um, mm -hmm. And just the other thing kind of following up from, from Pallavi is just thinking about vulnerability as a key aspect of experiencing sexual violence, but also as a starting point for resistance and social justice. I mean, I think the very phrase, me too, is an admission of having been vulnerable, of having had one's body violated sexually. And I, it's in the recognition of that violence that the solidarity and the struggle begins. So I wanna rethink vulnerability, not as weakness, but as a catalyst for examining the conditions that cause vulnerability to sex, sexual aggression and assault and to work together to change them. I think it's so important to rethink vulnerability as a form of strength, as the basis for action. Mm -hmm. We're all vulnerable at some point. We're vulnerable when we're young, we're vulnerable when we're very old, you know, um, we all experience other vulnerabilities during our lifespans. And so I'm gonna quote the feminist writer, Karine Mardarosian, who notes, rather than blaming victims, we should recognize that the crime of rape is the abuse of this fundamentally human condition. And so, um, so I think, you know, the Me Too movement has switched on a light that can't be dimmed and we need to work together across identities to end sexual violence. This is a crucial goal, I think, for all of us who envision a more just and safe world. Mm -hmm. Well, I'd like to ask a question to anybody who feels like weighing in here. What kind of political or cultural backlash presents the greatest threat to Me Too and to progress in this area? Well, you know, it, it's not just a cultural backlash. There is a literal physical backlash where there are groups of people, mainly men, uh, mm -hmm. who are armed. Mm -hmm. Right. Who are carrying their ARs around, who are, you know, this is these are phallic symbols. And, you know, when the young man uh, did not get convicted for killing two people, two white men, you know, that's like a massive sign that, you know, uh, all bets are off here. There's there's not going to be any rules. And so, uh, you know, and there's those groups of men. Uh, you know, who hate women or think that they should own women or, you know, white women should just obey them. And so I'm really afraid of the physical backlash that we may see 
in perhaps the relatively near future. Yeah, I would I would like to add something if I can. I don't know if I'm mm -hmm. visible here. Mm -hmm. and, and yeah, and that is that I think the advance of far right white nationalist authoritarian movements throughout the world has a, is a very great concern. Even in France, for example, right now, where we there are two figures on the far right, Marine Le Pen, but a new individual has emerged with Eric Zemmour, where the, the spearhead of this movement is often an attack on women's rights and, the, and, 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 and a, re, a, a pledge and a drive to reverse the progress that has been made since the 1970s in, in, in the case of France. So I think a very grave concern is what's happening with the attack on democracy in general, on autocracy and on authoritarianism, which is typically very misogynist, very monologic and phallic. And I think that we all need to be aware that if these movements advance, women's rights are going to be the first ones that are going to, to fall in the face of that. This is evident with the Proud Boys, the role that they played in, in the January 6th events. And you see similar misogyny expressed in white nationalist movements that are emerging across Europe as well. So I think that's a really important point of threat that we need to be looking at. Mm -hmm. The Texas abortion law yeah. that spread to, you know, they overturn Roe v. Wade and, and it's state to state and you may have 20 or 30 states saying things like it's all right for vigilantes mm -hmm. to follow you and track you down if you go to exercise any right to reproductive freedom or control over your own body. Mm -hmm. yeah. That's coming. Yeah. Well, gosh, I, I don't know when we've had a more powerful or interesting program. And I want to thank you all very, very much, particularly in this segment, Gigi Durham, Pallavi Guha, and Adrian Wing. Thank you so much. And thanks to all of our previous guests, too. It's just a wonderful evening. And I want to remind you that this program will soon be available on iTunes, the Public Radio Exchange, YouTube, and the International Programs website. And for everyone listening or watching, I want to thank you for joining us today, and I hope you'll tune in for future World Canvas programming as well. The next program will be held at Merge in downtown Iowa City on February 28th, and we invite you to join us in person or online. The topic is Teaching and Frank, and World Canvas will be the first event in the 2022 Provost Global Forum of the same name. So for international programs at the University of Iowa, I'm Joan Kerr. Thank you, and we'll see you next time. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs>